to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Tonight, what I want to do with this four-week series as we gather uh, is here's my, my, my thought with this. Uh, we do a lot of pieces on Sunday nights that are familiar to some of you and then not familiar to others of you. But either way, there's, there's something, maybe, maybe a few questions that you have or thoughts about, okay, so why do we do this and what's with the old stuff and is old better than new stuff and who really cares anyway and uh, bring more rock and roll and not enough, you know, whatever the case may be. And so my, my thought is to say, all right, let's do this, let's take four weeks and let's talk about some of the different pieces that we do um, particularly on Sunday night. So tonight, uh, part one, we're going to talk about sacred rhythms or rhythms and rituals. Is there something to uh, the repetitiveness? And you could guess from the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading that there's something that we have to do to sort of work to remember, and these kinds of rhythms can help with that. Well, next week, I'm going to talk about the creed and communion. Why are those pieces part of our worship? And, and what, could we just put them anywhere in the service? Does it really matter? What makes it worshipful? Is it just rote? Uh, and some of you, I've, I've had great conversations with some of you who've grown up where you've said the creed, and you kind of still have it, you know, kind of tucked in your memory somewhere, and phrases keep popping out. I heard one guy last week saying, like, the, the Apostles' Creed version of it, and he was, uh, anyway, determined to say it his way. But, but you know, we, we, you've got it in the back of your mind. That's okay, uh, sort of. But but so I, I, want, I want to teach next week on, okay, so why does the Nicene Creed and why the community, is this just, is Glenn uh, into some kind of trendy thing here? Am I just swaying us into some uh, trendy thing? Uh, which I find interesting because it's hard to call something that's 2,000 years old trendy, you know? Um, but nevertheless, we'll explain that next week. And then week three, we'll talk about prayer, in particular corporate prayer, and why is it we're praying some other dude's words, and is it okay to pray someone else's words? And what about what I've been told my whole life, that now that I'm born again, I can just start talking to God? I mean, can't I do that? Why are you giving me words to pray? Any of you thought that? Wondered that? Honest? You, don't wanna, you won't offend me. This, so we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that in the third week. And then in the fourth week, we'll talk about confession. Why in the world do we do confession every week? I mean, is this overkill? Again, is this like sort of dead rituals? Why are we doing these things? So my hope is that over these next four Sunday nights that, that we'll emerge from this kind of saying, all right, I, I get it. And it's not to say this is one, uh, this is the right way and everyone else is wrong. I just want you to know the reasons behind why we've crafted this service this way. Does that sound all right? Yeah, okay. Um, and if you're not interested in that, maybe you'll take four weeks off, but no. <laughs> hopefully not. No, hopefully not. Um, when I was thinking about tonight and thinking about this talk, week one, to talk about rhythms and, and rituals, uh, our first um, instinct is to be opposed to that. And in fact, uh, there, it has a very negative connotation when you say uh, routine. A lot of people will say, man, I just, I'm tired of the routine. I want to get out of the routine. I don't like my routine. And, uh, and, and I've even heard people make clever plays on the word between routine and rut, you know, and to say, oh, well, look, if I get in a routine, that's just a rut. And, and, and clearly, I won't be in step with the Spirit if I'm doing the same things. And so what I want to talk to you about is, is that really a true statement? 
Is it true that to have rhythms in our life or to have routines in our life, that, that those are binding things or, or, or things that inhibit us and that we're sort of having to work against that to follow God? Or could it be that God knows the way He made us that we actually depend on a certain cadence to our life? Could it be that the reason God gave Israel specific feasts and specific routines and specific ways to mark the months and to mark the calendar was so that they could live into a story? Could it be that God knows what we need? Now, we have to work hard against this because, again, our our tendency is to say, man, I want to live free and a rhythm or a routine or worse yet, a ritual. That doesn't sound like freedom. And oftentimes we throw off any sense of rhythm or routine or ritual because we want to be free. But then in the name of freedom, we find that our life is this manic, manic thing. And really, if we were to score a piece of music to the cadence of your life, my life, I suspect it might feel a little bit like this. Gotta take the kids to soccer, gotta go to ballet, gotta go, you know, pick up this, gotta go here, gotta work late, gotta send more emails, 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 and we're just going, going, and what about dinner? Did anyone take the dog out? And let's go! Graduation is coming, the semester of the year is coming to an end, and we can have vacation. little camping trip, a little getaway by the beach, <sighs> and waiting for this. All right. And this is a little bit of our rhythm, that if we're honest, our life does fall into a certain cadence and a certain rhythm. It's just usually like that Chopin piece, you know, <laughs> and it's just... And we wait for the relief. We wait for the the major lift, you know. We wait for that. And that's, that's okay. I think that's part of our... our we, we graduate, we, we, we lean towards rhythms like that. But if we're going to live in a rhythm anyway, why not think about the rhythms that God has given His people? I, I want to look at two different texts tonight and... You can tell already that the, the series is going to be more topically driven than it is uh, uh, exegetically driven, and, and I think you'd be okay with that because you know how I love the Scriptures so much, and, and my wife always tells me I spend far too long on my sermons explaining all the context and nuances of the text. Well, that probably won't be the case tonight or, or in this series. First Kings chapter 8, verse 56 through 61, this is in the message paraphrase, Blessed be God who has given peace to His people Israel, just as He said He'd do. Not one of all those good and wonderful words that he spoke through Moses has misfired. May God, our very own God, continue to be with us just as he was with our ancestors. I want you to notice right away that these words are intentionally connecting them to a story. That he will be with us just as he was with our ancestors. It's intentionally connecting them to something larger. May he never give up and walk out on us. May he keep us centered and devoted to him following the life path he has cleared, watching the signposts, walking at the pace and rhythms he laid down for our ancestors. This is remarkable. 
And let these words that I've prayed, and I, this is in the presence of God, be always right there before him day and night, so that he'll do what is right for me to guarantee justice for his people, Israel, uh, day after day after day. And then all the people on the earth will know God is the true God. There is no other God. And you, your lives, must be totally obedient to God, our personal God, following the life path he has cleared, alert and attentive to everything he has made plain this day. When God gave Israel these rhythms and these patterns, here there are several generations after Moses and after they've been set free from Egypt. And this is their reminder to say, look, look, our ancestors walked this way. We've now got some history. And look, these same things, this law, these commands, these, these uh, rhythms, these patterns, this is what's going to help us live into the story, but also live out this obedient lifestyle. When you think about the way Israel structured their patterns, and we won't spend a ton of time with this, but they were very intentional with tying their rhythms, their understanding of time, with God's action. Take, for example, the week. In Exodus 20, when Moses gives them this command about the Sabbath, do you remember the, what's the event that they tie back into and say, okay, the reason we're going to work six days and one will rest is because God, yeah, creation, God worked six days, and then on the seventh, he rested. Later on, in Deuteronomy, when, he re- when they restate the law, there's a different historic event that they tie the Sabbath into. Any guesses? It says, for we were slaves in Egypt, and now we are free. Therefore, we'll keep the Sabbath day holy. In other words, their rhythm of time was rooted in God's action in history. It was not arbitrary. It was not this thing of, well, I don't know. What do you feel like doing? I don't know. What do you feel like? Well, let's do it. No, they were saying, look, this is what our rhythm of life is going to be. We're going to work. We're going to work. We're going to work. Six and then one. One, two, three, four, five, six, one. We're going to rest on the seventh, seventh. And the reason for that is they're saying, look, because this is what God was like. This is what God is like. This is how God worked and then rested. And this is how we used to be slaves And we didn't have the luxury of resting. And so now that we are free, we will rest on the seventh day. And there's this whole thing we can develop here. But Israel found their rhythms, not arbitrarily, but they found their rhythms based on what God had done in their story. Does that make sense? And then you go on, you think about the Exodus event and Passover. Some of you maybe took part in the Seder dinner that we had here uh, at the church a few months ago, but... You think about, even in the Exodus, when they're saying, look, when your children ask you, why are we doing this? Why are we having a lamb tonight? How come not last night? Why not next week? Why not for my birthday? This is what you tell them. And you tell them the story. And so all of a sudden, a yearly rhythm becomes an occasion to tell the story. We have things like this, actually. We, you know, Thanksgiving is a little bit like that. I'll never forget my first Thanksgiving in America. Obviously, didn't celebrate Thanksgiving in Malaysia. Think about that, then you'll get it. Um, but coming at 10 years old and sitting at this wonderful family's table and them explaining to us, look, we're having corn and turkey because the pilgrims and, you know, and all this stuff. It's like, wow, man, that's, that's cool. But do you know there's something richer than that even? For us as Christians, that there are rhythms that we live out. And the reason we think of Christmas and Easter or Lent or Advent is these things center us again 
on what God has done. And it's a way of saying, now, now mom, why do we do this? Now, dad, why do we do this? And it's an occasion to say, well, I'll, I'll tell you why. The Old Testament reading tonight, you know, talk about it as you're walking, as you, as you get up, as you lie down, all of those things. God gave Israel a rhythm that, that set them apart from all the other nations in the world. Imagine the reason why Jews, even when they were living in Babylonian exile, tried hard to maintain these distinctives about diet and about days off and all this stuff was not just maybe partly legalistic bond, but part of it because it reminded them of whose they were. It was a way of remembering, hey, I belong to God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. Every time they refused to work on a Sabbath day while the farmers all around them were working, they were essentially saying to themselves, the God who made the fields is our God. The God who created the heavens and the earth is the God that chose us. It was a way that marked them out. As we think about rhythms and rituals, even in our life, uh, I want to make three observations, and the first two are fairly general. And then the third will will hopefully center us a little bit on Christ. And the first is this, that a rhythm reinforces a desire. Uh, You know, it's funny, because we all do have rhythms. How many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Just raise your hand, even if you didn't. Like now is not the time to confess, okay? <laughs> and we do this, why? Because we have a desire not to get gingivitis. Or to not get, you know, we do this because we have this desire. Rhythms have a way of reinforcing desires. It's meaningless to sort of say to someone, oh, I've got this desire, and I really just want to do this and this and this, and I really want to have this happen in my life and this happen in my life. Well, that's great. So what are you building into your, your life rhythm to make sure that this happens? But I don't know. But I'm hoping the spirit really breaks. So I'm looking at Tim Evans back there. You do a lot of marriage work. I can't help but you see you're just shining back there. And I'm thinking about, you know, I'm sure, Tim, are you talking to couples about their marriage? Every couple starts out saying, well, look, I want to, you know, we want to be close. We want to make sure that we don't lose touch with one another, especially when the kids are little and all this stuff. Okay, well, great. What have you built into your, your rhythm of life to ensure that you and your wife will have time together. Uh, I don't know, man, but we just, we just try. And that's me. I'm not, a, listen, you need to know this about me. I'm not Mr. Discipline, okay? But I've learned that the hard way often, that if you don't build in these things, it just doesn't happen. I'm looking at Randy Wilson, the Wilson family. They wrote this book called Celebrations of Tradition. Is that right? And all these beautiful things that you can do in your home with kids and marriage, things that are intentional things that you build into your rhythm to say, this is a way of reinforcing our desire. My wife and I, plan a day, we, we, we've planned a date night each week, Tuesday night. Sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But more often than not, we're out on a Tuesday night. Sometimes we'll join other couples. Sometimes it's just us. But the point is this. If we have a desire but don't have a rhythm, it's just not going to happen. Rhythms are ways of reinforcing our desire. Okay, okay, I, I get that. But secondly, a rhythm helps us do tomorrow what you can't do today. A rhythm helps us do tomorrow what you can't do today. Now, this time, at first... Sounds confusing, but let me tell you a story. Um, gee, how long ago was this? Holly, are you in the room? 
maybe out with our son, who's got a rhythm of crying. Um, <laughs> but um, oh, sheesh, maybe three years ago, she decided she was going to run a half marathon in San Francisco. Now, big time kudos, you know, I have no such desires. Uh, and never had, probably never will. I've done the incline once, I've done Pikes Peak once, totally happy with that. I'm good. But she set as her goal that she was going to run a half marathon. Now, a half marathon, you know, 13 miles, this is not something you just wake up one morning and run, you know. In fact, nobody, I don't know, anyway, okay. So for her, she knew, okay, look, I'm nowhere near this. I think at that point, she had never run farther than three miles. That had been the most she'd ever run. And to me, that's like, wow, you're amazing, you know. You're like an Olympian, you know. Three whole miles, you know. And... Uh, so, so she decided to do this, and she and a couple of friends, and they had the trip planned and all this stuff. And so once you buy the tickets, it's like, okay, you're locked in. You're going to do this, you know. And that you have X amount of months before the event, and so she was training. But what I found interesting is that, and maybe there's different schools of thought on this, but the, 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 the um, advice that she, she and her friends received was that most people who run a half marathon or even a marathon don't actually run the whole stretch of the whole distance prior to the event. Uh, and I know for her and her friends, they never actually ran the 13 miles in one stretch before the event. Now, that seemed a little silly to me. I thought, well, how do you know you're going to be able to do this, you know? But what they started out with was they started out with what they could do. So they ran three miles, and they ran three miles several days a week. And then after several weeks of that, they ran four miles, and, you know, and it just sort of increased. Then they went five miles, then they did five miles in the hills, you know, and, you know, and they're just, they're, they, they kept adding it. But I think the longest they actually ever did was seven. When, when race day came, they did it, and they all ran this 13-mile stretch. And it's amazing because six months ago, they couldn't have done that. But a rhythm of running and a rhythm of starting with where you are and starting right here somehow, even in the natural, allows you to build up to where you can add more. And all of a sudden, six months later, you're doing things that you didn't think you could really do. I think for us, even in our, in our spiritual life, in our walk with the Lord, there, there's a much bigger uh, reality of this because we have the grace of God working in us. We have the Holy Spirit working in us. But I think that often becomes an excuse to not have rhythms, uh, and to say, well, I mean, the Holy Spirit's with me, and the fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's work, and so just, I just hope that one day I'll stop being such a jerk. <laughs> and I'm just sort of, hang, you know, hanging on to hope that, the, you know, and that even if I don't ever stop being a jerk, thank God He loves me because of Jesus, all true, but, uh, you know, uh, growing in Christ, yeah, I don't really know, it's, you know, just whatever. Or... We can understand that even the early disciples understood that there's something about engaging with the Holy Spirit right here, right now, in this amount of prayer, in this amount of fasting, or in this amount of what you, what, where you are in this journey, and then saying, all right, Holy Spirit, keep the, let's keep this going. And then all of a sudden, you keep growing. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, says this phrase about putting off old behaviors and putting on new ones. And it's shortly after that that he says, now go on and be filled with the Holy Spirit, as if to say, don't anybody confuse this for pure self-effort. 
But by the way, being filled with the Holy Spirit means He's going to nudge you about things to put off and things to put on. Participate with Him in that. Say yes to Him in that. A couple of weeks ago, I, ha- I think I told you this, but I had coffee with um, the priest of the Eastern Orthodox Church here in town, Father Anthony. And um, uh, it- it's a fascinating church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church in general is a Really, really remarkable for a number of, of reasons. Baron and Karen, Barry and Karen, your son is studying to be a priest, and he's over in, in a seminary in Pennsylvania. It's a remarkable thing because the Orthodox Church, in their very liturgy, in the, the rituals, the rhythms that they do each week as part of their service, has been unchanged since like the third or fourth century. And they would say, oh, we actually, we can trace it even earlier than that. In fact, one of the jokes Father Anthony said, and I only suspect he was half joking, but he, he found out that, you know, I'm back in seminary and all this stuff, and he said, hey, you know, Glenn, instead of studying about the early church, you should just be part of the early church, you know, and of course, that's what he means is that the Eastern Orthodox Church has not changed at all, and, and they split from the Roman church when the Roman bishop wanted to take charge of the world, and they didn't want that, and they understood plurality of leadership, and all of that's true. And, and, and so, anyway, so we, we got in this conversation, and he was telling me about his, his uh, experience when he was in seminary, in, in, in this very same seminary in Pennsylvania, and apparently they're paired with a spiritual mentor sort of person, and, and he says, look, like any arranged thing, you can try to duck out of it or cut corners and cheat around it, you know, but he said, we, we, we learned to meet with this person, and, and we could arrange the, the regularity or the frequency or whatever, and, uh, and a lot of it was about our spiritual formation. I said, spiritual formation? That's kind of in my job description, but I'm a bit clueless. Tell me, what does this mean to you? I said, oh, for the Orthodox Church, he didn't skip a beat. He said, for the Orthodox Church, spiritual formation is very simple. It's repentance. So what do you mean? He said, repentance. It's about learning to confess. And he says, not just learning to confess like when you've already done something. But growing in Christ, learning to confess the things as they're little seedlings in your heart. Little things. And so he says, uh, he, he was talking about even now in his congregation, he, he meets with, uh, for the most part, the different, every member of his congregation, and they're about half the size we are, but he meets with every one of them almost every month. He says, well, what, what, what is part of this confession? He says, well, sometimes, you know, my hope is not that they'll say, okay, you know, you know I need to confess, I you know, had an affair, you know. Yeah, that, okay, that, that, that's one level, but you're really beginning to respond to the Spirit when you repent of, yeah, you know, I, I've, I've, I confess that I've had vanity or, or, or lust or, or, or pride or, or, or ego, or fear, and you begin to sort of say, let Holy Spirit show me deeper inside, and so how do we keep growing? How do we become farther in Christ than we are now, more like Christ? Yeah. We, we're not in charge of that. We can't script that out. We don't, we don't show God our schedule. Jesus, by 35, I'd like to have these fruits down. Fruits of the Spirit, that is, you know. But we, we, it doesn't work that way. But as we get in this habit of confession, and this habit of saying, yes, I'm here I am again. Here I am again standing before. Here I am again opening up the Scriptures. Here I am again being still in silence. Here I am again. You begin to... Let that rhythm make space for the Holy Spirit to work. Does that make sense? So in the marathon example, it's you training, but in, the, in our context, it's us making space for the Spirit to keep working in our hearts. 
But thirdly, it's this. A rhythm connects us to a larger story. This, I think, is maybe the most important thing to say about this. It helps us pay attention to something larger that we're part of, not just something, but someone, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and their specific work in history. I'm not sure if I should say this story, but, but uh, allow me the grace um, to try to do this in a way that's not offensive. I had a, a fascinating conversation recently uh, with a, a couple that came to me sincerely with questions of why the Book of Mormon could not be considered Scripture. And they said, look, I just, I'm sort of confused. Everything that the Bible teaches uh, as far as values and principles are found in this same book, this Book of the Mormon. And look, if the values are the same, then what's the big deal? And as we were talking more, I said, you know, if we were talking about algebra, then one textbook is as good as another. And this is revealing to me, because it says to me that as Christians, all the Bible is about is a book of principles and values. Is that it? Is that what the Scripture is? A book of principles that we sort of learn to apply, we grab out of abstraction, and we apply it somehow? Is that what this is? That's how we treat the Bible, though, isn't it? It's just a book. It's just a book with good principles And it happens to be set in a funny land called Israel. And it happens to involve these people called Jews. But but really, none of that matters. These are just abstract principles. Isn't that how we treat the Bible? The the way we talk about Jesus, for all we know, he could have uh, come from China. It didn't matter that he came to Israel. He was just a guy that was God. And so we talk glibly about Jesus being your personal Lord and Savior. And we evangelicals, we believe that the historicity of the Bible matters. And yet we treat Jesus like a mythological figure. Because we don't take seriously the story. All we care about are the principles and the ideas. But friends, the Bible is not a math book. If it were, then yeah, one textbook is just as good as the other. You find values that are consistent with one another. Go ahead. Whatever your holy book is, we're all just learning to live a good life. Is that what the Bible is? No. And I said to this couple, as gently as I could, and you you can guess this about me, I'm not always gentle. I said, the Bible is not a book of principles and ideas. It's 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 a true story of God the Creator making the world. God the Son entering it to redeem it. And God the Spirit at work in the people of God now. It's not fundamentally a book of ideas. It's a story that tells us what we're part of. And then I said, and then I said to him, I said, now listen, if I were to invite you to come to say, hey, hey, let's do it, let's pretend we're at the improv, we're at the theater, okay? Uh, ready? Join me on the stage, here we go. What's the first thing you would say? You'd say, well, I don't know how to act. And why do you not know how to act? Because I don't know the story. And, but if, in order to do improv well, I've got to at least set the stage, right? I've got to say, okay, Greg, here, stand up here, Greg. Okay, uh, here's the story. Uh, two guys walk into a bar, a priest and a rabbi. Okay, here's the thing. Okay, go. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> 
He can begin, he knows how to act because he knows what the story is. Do you see what I'm getting at? Christian ethics doesn't make sense without the story of Christ. We're not trying to popularize Christian values, hoping that everybody will just adopt Christian values. It doesn't make sense unless Jesus is Lord. This is fundamentally a story of God at work and what it means to be His people. We do these rhythms each week, rhythms of, of communion, and we're going to unpack that next week. And why communion? Why, the, why, why these specific rhythms? Because these specific rhythms remind us that we're part of this, that the same God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence picked a people out of, the, out of the face of the earth, redeemed them, and chose to, through them, bring about a plan that would save all people. And this plan culminates in one man, a Jewish man named Jesus. And this man died, and this man rose again, and this man formed a people, and this people is called the church, and these people have been given the Spirit, and these people now live in this particular way. You see, this is our story. And the rhythm that we do reminds us of that story. Stanley Harawas is a professor of ethics at Duke University. In 2001, Time Magazine named him America's best theologian. And a lot of what I've just said is stuff that Harawas has given his life to, to speaking and teaching and writing about. And he says one of the great myths of American, of the, of American culture is that each person gets to write their own story. One of the great myths of American society is that each person believes that you get to write your own story. It's a lie. You don't get to choose the family you were born into. You didn't get to choose the city. You didn't get to do, There's so much about our lives that we didn't choose. But this is where the church stands up and says, look, don't believe the lie of self-actualization. Don't believe the lie that says, I can write my own script, and if I just had enough freedom, then I could be me, and you could be you, and we could be we. You know, don't believe that lie. The church stands up and says, there's already a story in progress. It's the story of the Creator God, the story of His saving Son, and the story of His life giving spirit. Do you want to join this story? If we lose rhythms and rituals, we lose a way of telling the story. If we lose rhythms and rituals, we lose a way of telling the story. And then we could just gather and sing songs that make us feel good and have goosebumps and have a little high, and do, watch some funny videos, listen to a weird guy, kind of give a quasi-inspirational talk, and then go. What we do when we gather is so much more than that. We do these rhythms. We do these rituals because it reminds us of the story. To me, the centerpiece of this service is communion. And I'll explain why next week. But we say this phrase each week before communion. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The whole point of what we do when we gather is that none of it should make sense if those three statements are not true. How do we know that what we do when we gather is the right rhythm and the right ritual? You can ask yourself, would this rhythm and this ritual make sense or be true if Christ did not die, if Christ did not rise, if Christ will not come again? The reason 
we do it is because we believe that's true. I want to close with this verse. Matthew chapter 11 in the message again says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Now we like this first part of the verse so far. Oh yeah, just me and Jesus, cozy together. And then he says, walk with me. Well, work with me. Watch how I do it. Here's the phrase I just love. And I know it's a paraphrase, but I love this phrase. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. My prayer for us as we do these rhythms and rituals together each week is that what we are doing is learning this unforced rhythm of grace. We're making space for Jesus to be the center, for the Spirit to speak and work in our hearts, and for the Father to be glorified in His children. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, all of us have this desire to become like your son. We know it's just not possible on our own. And all of us have this desire to be your people, to really be your people here on earth. And we, again, know it's not possible on our own. But so we have these rhythms and we embrace these rhythms and these rituals, these marks in our calendar of Lent and Easter and Pentecost and Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and all of these markings, all of these rhythms to say, Jesus, you be the center. Not our activity, but your activity. The church calendar is based on Christ's life to remind us it's his actions that matter more than ours. So teach us, Lord, to learn the unforced rhythms of grace, to accept these things of doing it each week as a way of submitting to you, as a way of saying, you're Lord, we're not, as a way of saying what we want or what we like really doesn't matter. But we submit to you. Spirit, work in us. Make Christ the center. Make us like Christ so that the Father may be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.